0: The Individual Investor Show. You want it all, don't you? you hear one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it.
1: Hello and welcome to The Individual Investor Show. My name is Jennifer shearer your host for this evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. Happy Financial Capability Month! So for the entire month of April, we'll be focusing on financial literacy and education, which makes investing more accessible to everyone. Did you know that the average person living in the United States has saved roughly $65,000 or less for retirement? And 40% of Americans say they feel uneasy as they approach retirement, worried that they may not have enough to cover daily living expenses. And to top it off, the average life expectancy has risen recently to 78.7 years in the United States, which is both a good and a bad thing when it comes to retirement. So for today's episode, we want to focus on two crucial elements of finding a winning portfolio strategy, measuring portfolio risk, as well as retirement allocation with funds. Tonight's event is the individual investor show, find your own winning portfolio strategy. So in this episode, I was able to sit down with Craig Israelson to chat about his newest article, Retirement Allocation Comparison with Vanguard Funds, which delves into retirement allocation as a whole. Israelson highlights that even though there is no one perfect asset allocation for everyone during their retirement years, there are several viable strategies you can consider that focus on equity. And in the second part of tonight's show, Charles Rapalett talks with Paul Merriman to discuss his recent article, The Pains and Gains of Investing which uses hypothetical performance of five simple equity portfolios to explain different risk measures so that you can choose the one that matters most to you. But before we jump in, I do wanna preface tonight's event by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. So without further ado, sit back, relax and enjoy our presentation. Hi Mr. Wilson, I thank you so much for making time to chat with me today about your latest article in the April 2022 issue of the AAII Journal, Retirement Allocation Comparison with Vanguard Funds. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wanted to get a little bit more information on your article and uh, kind of delve into each segment.
2: You are very welcome. I'm happy so, to talk with
1: you. Excellent, excellent. And uh, so my first question is uh, in your article, you mentioned that even though there is no correct equity allocation in, an, in a retirement portfolio, you do suggest retirees aim for about 40%. Um, and how did, so I wanted to ask you, how did you come to this conclusion and what is it based off of?
2: So it's based off of a lot of um, research over the years where, let me let me start again. So there was an idea that was floated years ago that a person should have an allocation to bonds equal to their age. Um, so if you're uh, 70 years old, then you'd have 70% in bonds. And that may have made sense back in 1990 because uh, we were in the midst of a, a world in which interest rates were declining. That's no longer the world we live in. And so the idea that. Um, at retirement, you just sort of automatically transition to bonds, it just doesn't make sense. And so I've done just years and years and years of looking at this and thinking about this. And one way to think about it that's um, easy to remember is if we make some assumptions about a portfolio Let's say we're taking 4% out of a portfolio as a retiree each year. So 4% of the balance, we withdraw. If we only have 20% of our portfolio in equity, those withdrawals will keep pace with inflation about one third of the time. That's a 20% equity allocation. If we have a 40% equity allocation, then our withdrawals keep pace with inflation about 57% of the time. If we have a 60% uh, equity allocation, and this can be broadly diversified equity allocation, then our, our withdrawals each year keep pace with inflation about 75% of the time. So at 20% equity, we're at about one third of the time that we keep pace with inflation. At 40%, almost 60% of the time, we keep pace with inflation. And so that's one of the metrics that I use um, and there's a lot of other metrics. Uh, the average amount you're taking out, the average ending balance of your portfolio after you know, say 25 years of withdrawals. So the bottom line really is that a retiree, let's say you retire at 70, and if your genetics suggest to you that you're gonna live for 20 to 25 years based on great grandparents, grandparents, parents, and basically just lifestyle you know if you hang glide to work maybe you won't live that long but um, you know so if you're 70 and you anticipate living to mid 90s you have a 25-year investing horizon and if i were to ask jenna so jenna how long do you plan to be investing you say oh you know at least 25 years i'd say oh well then you're a long-term investor well, then, that means retirees are also a, a relatively long term investor. And so we have to be thinking in terms of the the equity allocation, because that's always the engine of performance long term in a portfolio.
1: That makes sense. And, um, you know, you talk about, you know, we're not in a typical market environment anymore. And, you know, retirees may have focused on a steep allocation of bonds, you know, years, like you said, in the 90s. Um, However, this is just like no longer the case. Um, So I do want to ask you, do you still recommend retirees to have any bonds in their portfolio? And if so, uh, why is that the case?
2: Yeah, I, I do. And it could be an individual bond, which... Has different attributes than a bond portfolio, a bond mutual fund, or a bond ETF. Because if you're buying an individual bond, then, and you plan to hold it to maturity, you, and you, if a municipality or it's a government bond, you don't really have any risk. And so uh, the likelihood of it going into default is so low, you get your interest payments, you cash out for a thousand at the end. Um, that's kind of a, I don't know, that's, it's, I mean, it doesn't, it has risk, but the risk is so low. When we start talking about a portfolio of bonds, an ETF or a bond mutual fund, that's a little bit different. So a little bit of history there might be helpful. So if we start in uh, 1948, and the interest rate back in 48 was about about what it is now, a little bit higher than what it is now, but it's about the same. And then by 1981, interest rates were, oh, 13, 14%. So you had CDs paying over 14%, which is you know kind of mind blowing. Um, and during that timeframe where interest rates were, were rising, <clears throat> you have bonds, aggregate bonds returning uh, about 3.8%. Okay, so that was a rising rate environment from 1948 to 1981. And bonds are just a little bit below 4%. So that's not horrible. But when you compare it to what bonds have done since then, from 1982 through the end of last year, bonds have returned about just under 7.5% annualized. So that's what people are kind of used to, you know, is a bond producing and I'm talking about the aggregate bond index, they're accustomed to bonds returning a, a, a return that's comparable to equity, a little bit lower, but you know, impressive. So now here we are again in 2022, it kind of looks like 1948, in terms of the interest rate cycle, we're back down at a bottom. And if over the next 10, 15 years bonds did what they did back then, which is, you know, a little bit below 4%, that's disappointing compared to what we've experienced. But, you know, if my portfolio risk reducer produces 4% versus 7.5%, the question is, can I live with that? I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, if the main role of the bond is to be a risk reducer and a portfolio dampener, and I get a little bit less return, it's kind of like the brakes still did their job. And portfolios are a a braking system, they're not an engine system. So with that sort of uh, mindset, then yes, uh, bonds still perform their sort of shock absorbing role in a portfolio. A person may wanna have a little bit shorter duration in their bond funds, But if you don't use bonds, then you have to ask yourself well, what am I going to use to be the shock absorber in the portfolio? And it could be cash. Um, Because if interest rates rise, then obviously, you know, cash is kind of like a a buoy in a lake, you know, it rises with the water level. So you'd have to come up with another asset class if you're not going to include bonds. And some people might use an annuity. Some people might use um, I don't know, like an investment in uh, an apartment complex that's not really comparable, but you'd have to come up with something else is my point.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, you have to have that diversification and add those. so that that makes sense. They're good suggestions for specifically you know individual investors who are um, looking for that kind of uh, protection or that hedge. Um, I did want to ask you, so in your article, you recommend several types of Vanguard funds that retirees can add to their portfolio. Uh, so I wanted to ask you and kind of delve into how did you research these specific funds and what was your basis uh, or criteria for choosing these specific ones?
2: So this will probably surprise people if they they kind of know where I'm coming from, because uh, a, a lot of what my work over the years has been involved in um, low cost, products. Um, I I like uh, ETFs, and those are primarily passively managed, they're index based. But one of the criteria, interestingly, for this model, the seven Vanguard funds model is that these funds are primarily actively managed. And the rationale for that is that, uh, and bear in mind that, you know, I produced this model during covid and you know covid has, has kind of weirded us out and um so there's a lot of there's an increasingly the the world is increasingly complex and um and i'm interested in what vanguard has done vanguard it, it, this will be surprising to people uh 37% of Vanguard's funds are actively managed. And that is not broadly perceived, I don't think. I don't know that. I haven't asked every person in the world, but but I just don't think that that's a commonly perceived reality. And uh, 28% of all the assets at Vanguard are actively managed. So that's a material commitment on the part of Vanguard So we we just talked about fixed income. When you think about fixed income, you can be active with it or you can be passive with it. And I'm, I'm interested, if I'm gonna put money with a Vanguard fund to begin with, that means I trust Vanguard. Okay, that's the opening statement. Then the question is, do I want to extend trust to them to go beyond just replicating an index? And my answer is, yeah, I'm interested in their best thinking. I'm interested in their best thinking in international stocks, as opposed to the best thinking of S&P or Morgan Stanley. I mean, if you do an index-based product, then you're basically saying, I trust the best thinking of Standard & Poor's, Morningstar, Russell, whoever. So so this particular model of funds, um, it's not as if the primary criteria was that they're actively managed, But that's where I ended up going with this particular model.
1: Makes sense. And um, kind of, oh yeah, go
2: ahead. and, And the funds that I've put together all have, some of them might be considered sector funds. So they have a very specific focus. And others, other of these funds are funds of funds. So you have mega diversification under one ticker, then under another ticker in the model. You have a uh, sort of like laser-like focus because what, what we're always wanting to do when we blend funds into a portfolio is to make sure that we're not adding chocolate chips to chocolate chips. You know, if you're going to diversify, then you really have to diversify. And these funds need to be different because if they're not different, then you don't need two of them. You only need one of them. And it's surprisingly difficult to find funds that are materially different because so many funds either explicitly or implicitly sort of track or shadow track the S&P 500. Because they're so afraid, you know, to have a deviation from the S&P that the S&P has become sort of this gorilla in the room that really uh, sort of bullies a lot of, that didn't sound right, anyway but it influences what a lot of managers do and so active management and a combination of funds that are different enough that you achieve what i would con- what i would call genuine diversification not just i got you know x number of tickers and i hope they're different
1: I can see that individual investors making that, you know, common mistake actually of not, of, of picking one or too similar. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you kind of a follow up question was that which funds um, did you, because we were talking about uh, conservative versus aggressive risk tolerance and regards to, you know, your duration of your goals and especially with retirement and funding that. So which funds um, in the seven Vanguard funds for life model were allocated for more conservative risk tolerance versus versus uh, more aggressive investors?
2: So in the more conservative model, the one that is um, 40% equity, so it's a 40-60. Um, the heavy hitter, There, the the fund that got the largest allocation was Vanguard Wellesley Income, which is a really, really great fund. Uh, and then there was a um significant though a lesser allocation to Vanguard Star, the Star Fund. So in the in the article, the Star Fund is actually one of the comparison funds, but it's also one of the funds in the seven Vanguard fund model, because it's a great fund. And and then there was the healthcare fund, they got a little allocation in the conservative version, uh, small cap and international explorer fund. So um, you've always got diversification, but in the conservative version, if you're only allowed 40% equity, then that meant that the Wellesley income, which is primarily a uh, an income-based fund, a, a bond fund, um, it had to get the lion's share to get down to a 40% equity overall allocation.
1: Makes sense. And um, you also, you know, you also delved into how each portfolio and fund performed over a 17 year period. So from 2005 to 2021. Um, so I just wanted to kind of ask you how to, if you could expand on what your findings were during that 17 year period.
2: Well, um, it may not be a big deal to people but when you build a portfolio and you measure how it's doing the two most common measures are average annualized return which is to so geeks like me is known as the geometric mean so it's not the arithmetic mean of the year to year returns but it's a chained a chained return which accounts for compounding And we call that chained linked return, those returns that are linked, we call that a geometric mean. And and then you have uh, the volatility associated with that experience. And and we have to consider that because volatility does bother people. And we react to it. And to pretend that we don't would be to ignore the obvious. Uh, We do react to it, either emotionally or interactionally. We go to the computer, we get our mouse, and we dump our portfolio into cash. That's a reaction. And usually not a good one. Um, Because it's usually, oftentimes it's at a bottom, a market bottom. So, and we wouldn't sell our house. You know, if our house just plummeted in value 20%, it wouldn't just dawn on us, hey, honey, I think we ought to sell our house now. You know? Um, So the, the attributes of the 4060 model which is that conservative version the return um let me make sure i say this right i'm just looking at the article uh the return over the 17 years was 6.74 percent, and the standard deviation was 6.8 so basically identical and i don't know that that means what it to others what it means to me but when you can achieve a return that's reasonable and just below 7% is a reasonable return and do so with a level of standard deviation that is the same size as the return, that's really, that's not easy. Um, and, And so to be honest with ourselves, we have to consider the risk adjusted performance of anything we're considering and um you can get more return by taking a lot more risk but then and this is and and that's a standard statement that's kind of like a you know a finance textbook thing to say Uh, it turns out that the connection between risk and return begins to fade after about 12 percent standard deviation Um, and that's what i'm working on right now is a big paper on you know, how long is it, does it remain true that if you take more risk, you get more return? And what I'm finding is, yeah, that's definitely true up to about 12% standard deviation. After that, the correlation just really erodes and you may, but you likely won't get more return. You're not being compensated for risk after about 12% standard deviation. So with that in mind, so you've got a standard deviation of the more aggressive seven fund model of about um, 11, eleven and a half percent. and and so and that's measured by uh, actually annual that's an annual calculation of standard deviation versus monthly returns. And the annual calculation is actually a little higher. It produces a higher standard deviation than if you use monthly returns, interestingly. so the, the whole point of a, a portfolio, whether it's the seven Vanguard funds for life or, you know, whatever a person wants to build, the idea is that we're trying to move up the volatility curve. To something approximating an optimal point and that optimal point is. Um it's not much beyond about 12 percent standard deviation so that's that's one of the things that matters a lot to me because i look at my own sometimes my own bad behavior as an investor and it has a lot to do with not being patient uh, as patient as it should be uh, or it has it may have to do with underestimating my tolerance or maybe overestimating my tolerance for risk And then suddenly you get into a a bit of a train wreck situation with COVID and 2008, you know, whatever. And you think, whoa, um, could I have done this differently so I wasn't as exposed to all these winds and storm and so forth? And the answer is, yeah, we can do things a little bit differently. And so let me say it this way. These portfolios are designed... They are not designed to compete with the S&P 500. Flat out, they are not. Um, that will give you more return if, if you can stand the heat. And, and you only know if you can stand the heat by going into the heat. And I think a lot of people have learned that they, they can't or they don't want to. So, so a diversified portfolio has a couple of objectives a modest return, somewhere between you know 7 and 9%, without the major fluctuations. Um, and 2008 is a pretty classic example. So the conservative model we've been talking about, the Vanguard Seven Funds for Life, the conservative version, the 40% equity, that had a return in 2008 of minus 12%. And the S&P 500 lost 37%. So you have 37 or minus 12. And, and the tricky thing there, and I think, I think a lot of people have probably thought through this. If you have a big loss, it takes a much bigger return to break even. So if you lose 50%, you gotta make 100% to break even. So the math of gains and losses is not linear. It's non-linear and that's, that's bad. So that's where nonlinear is not good. So if you lose seventy-five percent, you got to make three hundred percent to break even. And interestingly, in two thousand eight, there was there was a bond fund where it was a mixture. It was a mostly bond fund, but it lost seventy-five percent. You know, Um, and that's why, as a retiree, you don't want to put everything in one fund. Even though you like, the, you like the brochure of this fund, oh, it's got this, 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 this diversified. It's still only one ticker. And, and I guess what I'm saying in terms of this model is that, let's have, let's have at least a handful of tickers. So we're not putting all the, all the risk on one, even though that one fund is probably a very decent fund It's kind of like, you know, in high school, you have one best friend and then they move. Oh, that was a great idea, you know. So the the broad idea of diversification is even more critical for a retiree. You know, if Jenna, you know, if you said, listen, I'm pretty young. I'm just going to choose one fund and that'll be my accumulation fund until I retire. I I can live with that. I don't, you know, if it's a well-chosen fund. That's fine, but once you retire, now you don't have the luxury of of saying, oh, well, um, I'll just invest during this down period and that's actually good. You're pulling money out during a down period and that ain't good. So a more broadly diversified portfolio across more tickers than you may have had as an accumulator pre-retirement that's I, I think one of the sort of the underlying big messages here. We've got to be explicitly more diversified, and and I'm not trying to throw the Vanguard Star Fund under the, under the bus. That is a great fund. It has ten underlying Vanguard funds. It is a fund of funds, but it's still only one ticker. You can only pull money out of that one ticker, and you know darn well that under that one ticker there were ten funds. And a couple of those 10 funds had a decent return in 2008, but you can't get to those. You can't go down into those subterranean tickers. You can only take money out of the top level ticker. That's the problem with not having enough tickers as a retiree.
1: Makes sense. And yeah, it, it seems like we can learn a lot from, you know, that 17 year period because we saw, we just have have so much data, especially when it comes to the 2008 or things like that. But um. I did want to ask you kind of a, a, to an extension of the retirement, um, talking about retirement. What would you advise individual investors to do if they were preparing for retirement later than they would have liked? So, for example, if they were starting to invest in their 50s or 60s rather than in their 20s or 30s, when, you know, um, maybe t- you know it would have been a better time or a different market.
2: So. Um, I've actually studied this and. When you're young, it makes more sense to amplify the potential return of the portfolio. In other words, be a little bit more aggressive because the returns of the portfolio need time to manifest themselves. In other words, compound interest takes time and you don't really notice it much for the first 10 years. It's the last 10 years, like the 20th through the 30th. That's when the compounding is really powerful. So for a younger person, they have kind of a choice. Can I invest more? Or should I build a portfolio that's a little bit more aggressive? Well, the numbers prove out that I well, ideally you do both. Okay, but um, you're buying diapers, and you're paying for a mortgage. And so that's hard to maybe invest a lot more. And so you take a little bit more aggressive stance and you have the time because you're young to let the compounding, that extra return of a more aggressive portfolio will be your friend over the long haul. Everything changes about past age 50. You don't have enough time for compounding to really do its main work. Therefore, you've got to invest more if you have the capacity. In other words, don't swing for the fences with the portfolio. Build a modest portfolio, but try to invest more. That's actually going to be more impactful.
1: That's a good. That's a good. Honestly, I can see that. You know, a lot of people. You know, and if they have the ability, like you said, so it can be difficult. So it's always, you know, as soon as you can invest early on, even even if it's a, you know, in the 40s or 50s, you know, try. It, that makes sense. And yep. I did want to ask you. So, um, you know, in regards to the seven Vanguard funds for life model, um, were there any top performers or anybody that came out on top when you were looking at the overall um you know overall the seven the seven different funds
2: oh yeah by far the the best of that mix of that seven fund mix the vanguard healthcare etf has just dominated that that's been an incredible sector of the economy for years and years so that particular fund the vanguard healthcare either the fund or the etf either one um Vanguard Star has done a nice job as it's supposed to, as it's designed to do. I've mentioned Wellesley Income. That's a fantastic fund. It's a a lower volatility fund. Um, And then the um Vanguard Small Cap has has been a great contributor. But but if you had to single one out, it'd be the Vanguard Healthcare.
1: Excellent. excellent. And um so Looking at the overall um, model, what do you think individual investors can learn from using this strategy for retirement investing? If they had like one takeaway to um, kind of you know uh, that you would give to them,
2: well, it would be that um, diversification needs to happen explicitly, that just being in one fund that is inherently itself diversified. Is still only one ticker. And diversification means multiple tickers. And it can get ridiculous. You know, you can end up with 45 tickers, 45 different funds. That's hard to manage. And so this particular model has tried to find a sweet spot, whether it's seven tickers or ten tickers or twelve tickers, it's somewhere in that ballpark. Say between five and fifteen tickers. You know, that's probably the sweet spot where you've begun to saturate the amount of potential diversification and, and to be okay with that. Uh, you know, If the takeaway is that I'm okay with seven tickers, I don't need to always be out hunting for more tickers. That, that would be, I guess, one of the takeaways I'd want people to think about.
1: Excellent, excellent. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, before we, I get into some more personal questions, I did want to ask you, is there anything that you wanted to highlight from the article that I didn't already mention, such as, I don't know, withdrawals or any of the other topics that you covered?
2: Well, just the, um, the, the reality when you begin to study, and I, the last couple of years of my, of my research life, I've studied the dynamics of how retirement portfolios behave as we're pulling money out. And if we build a well-diversified portfolio and we are modest in our withdrawals, a 4% withdrawal rate, a 5% withdrawal rate, we're just modest. You really cannot kill the portfolio. You just can't. In fact, it grows. Even with the RMD being pulled out, it tends to grow. And So, if there's one thing we can all do is to take kind of a big chill pill and not, we don't have to live in fear that our portfolio is going to collapse. Now, will the portfolio provide enough income? That's a different issue. That's called income adequacy. And that has to do with our spending. But will the portfolio itself keep laying golden eggs? The answer is yes. That part we don't have to live in fear. If there's one thing that my work could do, if it would be to help people live with less fear in retirement, then I would count my career successful.
1: I think that's a great goal because honestly, even um, you know, in the as a millennial, I you know, there's a lot of you know, friend, I have friends and family that are very you know fearful when it comes to you know, is their portfolio going to last and And I I like that you also brought up the fact, you know, it's also about spending, though, too. It's, you know, being modest in your spending and understanding that, you know, that's also plays a huge, like, key role in, you know, uh, retention. Um, I did want to ask you a couple of personal questions. You know, in in your own life, um, how have you prepared for retirement as well as what are you still learning from your investigations and research?
2: Well, I mentioned it earlier. I'm not as patient as I thought I was. Um... Uh, as an investor and so i guess i'm learning that you know it's kind of like the old expression dear lord i want to be patient and i want it now (laughs) um so yeah And, and along that line if we think of patience as part of our asset allocation part of our portfolio design It's the contribution we make to the portfolio. I suspect that many of us can probably do a little bit better job of adding the asset class of patients to our portfolio. And then I guess I've learned over the years to be comfortable with a good plan. And you don't have to always be revisiting the plan or the portfolio. Let time do its job. Keep pulling up the daisies to see how they're doing. So put a plan in place, trust it, um, and then go about your business. You have more important things to do than to monitor a portfolio. You have grandkids and kids and and uh, volunteer and church work and just whatever it might be. That that's very important, and then. I guess mostly what I taught my my students over the years at Missouri and at BYU and now at UVU is, um, remember that money is a magnifier and it magnifies virtues and vices. And let us be very careful that we allow and we design intentionally our money to be a magnifier of our virtues and if we have vices let's utilize whatever we have to to minimize those vices and that we can be a, a very kind steward of uh, the money is is a tool it is not an end if money becomes an end it will it, it'll eat you up um, money has no emotions money doesn't show up at the table at at Thanksgiving. And so if we're not kind in our stewardship, then the money was a curse. And I think it's designed ideally to be a blessing to ourselves and to others. And that that takes some real intentionality.
1: I agree. I really like that perspective. I think a lot of people don't, you know, they get hung up and um, you even mentioned, you know, don't, you know, be sitting there just monitoring and and hoping because then you'll have that financial, uh, or that psychological risk almost like, you know, t- tainting your, your portfolio. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And um, I know I did also want to mention that you are a celebrated author and uh, who has numerous books on the topic of portfolio strategies and financial planning, especially for retirees. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, are you currently working on anything Anything exciting, any new projects that you'd like to highlight? I, I know you mentioned earlier that you might be working on a paper.
2: Yeah, so this this paper I'm working on um, I, I just have this idea that most of most of humanity doesn't walk around thinking about standard deviation. And yet we see it so often in reports and articles and um, so I'm just trying to, I'm trying to develop a better intuitive sense of benchmarks of standard deviation, you know, if you get take this much standard deviation, this is kind of what you're going to get and to develop some more intuition around standard deviation. So that's what I'm working on right now. And you know, the goal is to not be overly technical with it. It's like Da Vinci said, uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So that's my goal always, is to try to put things in terms that I can understand. And that usually means they need to be kind of simple.
1: It makes sense. And I mean, it, the more accessible it is for somebody then you know, for everybody that it's, you know makes everybody a little bit more confident in, you know, becoming an individual investor or taking control of their you know own finances. It's not yeah. as uh, intimidating.
2: <laughs> yep.
1: And um, I, I will, I actually my final question. You kind of already talked about it a little bit, but um, you know, you, you, you are also a professor and you've advised thousands of students each year. And so I wanted to ask you, you know what you stress your students um, about specifically planning and investing for retirement. So you, you talk about, you know, kind of thinking, having a new perspective on money and how, uh, you know, you can, um, you know, invest. With. I just want to, do you, do you advise them on any kind of retirement planning? Do you get them early, you know, as they're, you know, in their 20s, you know, kind of learning about it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Don't be embarrassed by your best efforts. And so if the best you can do is to save 10 bucks a month, do it. Don't say, oh, well, that's, you know, $10. That's irrelevant. That won't get it done. Uh, that's actually correct it won't get it done but what it is getting done is you're starting and you definitely won't get done if you never start so don't be embarrassed by your best best efforts
1: i like that advice i like that <laughs> that's good and, and you know it, it makes it like a, like i said again it makes it more approachable for people which is what you want <laughs> yep well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I really, you know, I really enjoyed our chat today about your article, and um, you know, I learned so much about you know the seven Vanguard funds for life model. I really didn't know that there were so many um, kind of uh, up, you know top funds that you can invest in that would help you know balance your portfolio for retirement. So that, that was excellent.
2: Thank you. Appreciate and, it, John.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, let members know that they can actually view and read the, um, your article in the April issue of the AAI Journal, and they can visit. Uh, AAI.com slash journal. So, yeah, thanks again. And I hope you have a re- wonderful rest of your day.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: Thanks.
0: <laughs> bye bye. Paul, let's start with a, a very simple question that can have a very complex answer. Um, how would you define risk in terms of investing? Well,
3: I mean, the obvious uh, ultimate risk is that we uh, run out of money before we run out of life. So, everything we do as an investor, first and foremost, is supposed to protect against risk. But that's a very long term thing. And people don't, they, they don't spend much time thinking long term, they spend a lot of time thinking short term. And what I work hard to do is to try to condition investors to almost forget about short term risk, because The 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 fact is, is some of the best investments that we can make are going to be very unsettling, whether it's a week or a month or a year. In fact, we're very open. We show people if you follow the strategies that we recommend, here's how much money you're going to lose in three months, six months, a year, three years, five years to prepare them for the reality. But the but at the end of the day. What seems to get people is losing money. That is the one risk they all understand. And they can't understand sometimes why somebody, myself, like myself, would suggest you should be losing money. If you're not losing money as a part of the process, you're probably not going to get a good return. So how do we get people to think about that period that you're underwater. And and that's the challenge, particularly since AAII and my work is trying to help a do-it-yourself investor who doesn't have somebody holding their hand right there, right now, when the going gets tough. So understanding a risk that they uh, they can quantify, I think is really important.
0: Right, And I guess in terms, of, I know you favor looking at drawdown. Um, how, come you prefer, how come you prefer drawdown instead of other measures of risk?
3: Well, uh, drawdown is one way. Uh, I, I think that, that actually the individual investor often thinks in terms of a, a, a loss, a year's loss or a, a relatively short period of time. But the drawdown makes, means from the peak uh, of a market to the very bottom of the market. I mean, it may bounce around on the way down, but how much money are you likely to lose uh, before it will turn around and head back up and start making you money? And that drawdown is something we should be aware of. This may surprise some people, but if you go back to the uh, to the '30s, the early '30s, the drawdown for the small cap value asset class was about 85% at, at its worst level. Well, that's, that's a big loss for people to sustain. And, uh, and, and, and also Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch, they've both been quoted as saying, if you're not willing to lose half of your money, you shouldn't be in the stock market. Well, you don't lose it uh, typically for a day, you know, you have got, but you, you better be ready to lose half of your money in the equity part of your portfolio over some unknown period of time. And we don't know how long that might be. And the longer it takes for the investor to go through this process of going down and then coming back up to being even again. That is, a, that is a question of high anxiety. If you draw that out, if you stay low and you just ever so gently make your way back up, it'll drive people nuts. If you have a huge drawdown, a big sell-off, and then it pops right back up, it, it doesn't seem to impact people the way a slow, long three, four, five-year period of recovering from those losses. What that does to people can be lasting. I mean, lifetime lasting where people say, no more stocks for me. And I've met a lot of those people over my
0: career. And I guess when you're talking talk about drawdowns now, and obviously talk about history, um, what would you say to someone who says, well, I can look back at drawdowns historically, but now this time is different. And I guess a good example is, as we speak, uh, the Fed just raised rates. Uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, just talked about possibly raising a double rate hike of uh, 50 basis points instead of 25. Um, What would you say to someone who says, well, I understand historical data, but now this time is different. So that historical drawdown, why should I still pay attention to that?
3: Well, there's always this challenge of what we believe from the past. Uh, I, many decades ago, prior to the 2000 through 2009 experience, I told people we should go back to 1928 to consider what the risk of an investment would be. And they said, oh, that stuff back there, that doesn't matter anymore. Well, in fact, it turned out that the losses that were sustained from 1929 to 1938 were virtually the same as the losses that were sustained from 2000 to 2009. Now, we didn't have bread lines and all the kinds of things that we might think of in terms of the depression, but we had the same return for the investor. In fact, if we inflation adjusted, you had a better return from 1929 to 1938 than you did from 2000 to 2009. I think the value of knowing how bad it can be should hopefully prepare us for what it's like we're in the middle of that so that we stay the course. But how can we know anything about the future? Uh, this is, as I, before we started here, I made the comment, this is a faith-based industry, and and people can become very critical once they think they've figured out what to trust about the future. And I have a lot of people right now criticizing me. How can I suggest somebody put money into any bonds, even short-term bonds, that stay out of bonds? Well, that's fine if you're a market timer. But what if we actually believe in buy and hold? And the reason we have bonds is because we're trying to stabilize the portfolio because there've been many times when bonds have been really profitable and many times they've been very unprofitable. But if you've got them short-term to intermediate and they are there only to stabilize, then why would you jump out because there was a possibility of a loss? Because the minute we accept that as a way to be is, well, wait a minute. Those losses are likely to be very small. And you say we shouldn't market time stocks? You tell me it's not a good idea to market time a stock? Well, if you're worried about holding bonds, you better be ready to market time your stocks when you think that the downside for stocks is going to be bad. And so I think there's a tug of war here. Are you a buy and holder or are you a market timer? And I find that most people raise their hand for I'm a buy and holder, but then the actions I see are those of a timer. And that hurts people certainly more than it helps because they can't figure out who they are. And a portfolio should be designed on how you are going to be not only in the good times, but in the bad
0: times. Well, that's a good point because a lot of people that are buy and hold investors, as you well know, uh, when there's a steep correction or a bear market, uh, they suddenly go from being buy and hold people to more market timers. So um, if they're experiencing drawdown in in real time, they're seeing the value of their investments drop. Um, What suggestions could you give them to allow them to stay the course versus, uh, say, panic selling?
3: Well, first of all, I think every investor should, should, in essence, prepare for the worst. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. So my wife and I, I'm 78. We are 50-50 stocks and bonds. And our assumption is we are going to lose 25% of the money we have in there because that's how much you lose in a bad market when you're 50% in bonds. And if I'm not willing to lose that, then I need to make a change. I need to correct for the kind of loss I'm willing to take. And I'll have people tell me that they are willing to lose, let's say 20 or 30% of their money. And they're sitting on a all equity portfolio. And I said, well, I just want to make sure I understand when your million dollars goes down to 700,000, that's okay. And you know what? Most of them conclude, no, that's not okay. So you need to build it to be a winner before you run into trouble rather than afterwards, because the minute you're in that kind of a panic mode, you're starting to make decisions emotionally rather than intellectually. And anything we can do to take the emotions out of it is likely to lead to better
0: rates of return. And I'm going to ask you one other question. Um, so we're talking about, you know, understanding what your pain threshold is, any suggestions for somebody, how they can figure out how much they might potentially could stand to lose. Uh, if their portfolio drops say 20% or 40%, uh, any suggestions you can give to somebody to say, this might be my number. Well, here's what,
3: what our worth our work believes. anyhow. this is what we think we can help people figure out. We have tables, they're called fine tuning tables and there'll be an equity position, 100% equity. The other side of that page is all bonds. And then we have combinations of that equity and the bonds in 10% increments. In each case from 1970 through 2021, we'll not only show you the compound rate of return, but the worst periods, including the worst drawdown for those combinations. Now the question is, can you get the return that you need to match the risk you're willing to take. Well, that's the, you see, this is the thing about a do-it-yourselfer. You are the advisor and you are the client and you have to negotiate that with yourself. So you look at the tables, you look at the return for a certain combination of fixed income and equity, and then you look at the money you're likely to lose. Where is that fit? And oh, by the way, to be fair, while I trust the losses that we sustained over the last 50-some years, I don't trust the gains. I have a I have a belief that we might not make the same return. So I ask, what if you took 2% right off the top, and we're able to achieve that return within your risk tolerance? Would you make it? Would you meet your needs? That's the test. And that's what all of these tables are built to help people do on their
0: own. Great. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for thinking of us. Take care. Yeah, you too. Take care, Paul.
1: And now for a message from our friends at Discover Bank. We know as individuals interested in building investor wealth, you never want your money to be idle. Even small dollar amounts for short amounts of time should be working for you. With that, we're pleased to share information from our partner, Discover Bank, on deposit accounts that keep your money moving. You can choose from several options to help you meet your short-term or long-term financial goals. The best part? All of the deposit accounts offer preferred member rates. Take a look! With Discover, you can earn over five times more interest than the national savings average with preferred member rates, and pay no fees. That's no fees, period. Plus, no minimum balance is required. You can access your AAII member savings account with Discover Bank from your smartphone or tablet, so it's easy to keep your money moving in the right direction. Open an AAII online savings account to start saving for the future today. Visit AAII.discoverbank.com to learn more. We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Paul Merriman and Craig Isrosen for delving into their articles with us. You know, I think both Merriman and Israelson have great perspectives on how to build a winning portfolio strategy that can actually last through the ebbs and flows of the market. And as a millennial, I did find their ideas really helpful when it comes to planning for my own future retirement and financial goals. And as always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future I.I. shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event on our YouTube channel. And make sure to register for upcoming AAII events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. If you're an investor on the go and want to catch the I.I. show while driving or going for your daily walk, you can now follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Also, members can view both of the articles in the April 2022 issue of the AAII Journal by visiting aaii.com journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you and happy investing.